Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicked, a cricket podcast that also goes by The Last Wicked Supergiants in some circles. I'm your host, Benny, and thank you for tuning in. If you aren't aware, we have been nominated for the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards in the Best Cricket Podcast category. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please visit sportspodcastawards.com, register, and vote for us. Also, check out the We Got Balls podcast, where I made a special appearance to do my part to promote the great game of cricket to the North American audience. It was a lot of fun chatting with a great group of guys, and I'm happy to say that I won them over. So do check out the links in our show notes. All right, our first first-time guest of the year is the host of not one, but two sports podcasts, Sake Bali of Tennis with an Accent and Cricket with an Accent. We invited Sakib over to talk about how we fell in love with cricket, the joys and pains of being an Indian cricket fan, how the way we follow the game has evolved over the years, and what we hope to see of the game going forward. We will get to all of that and more right after this brief segment. So Mayank, what's on your mind this week? So I've been reading about um, Brendan Taylor and Heat Streak, and um, you know I've always thought, oh yeah, these people who whether they're in spot fixing, whether they're in match fixing, they just, you know, bring the game down, they bring a bad name to the game and um, just been really anti, you know, any any of those people getting involved again, which is why I was really pissed when Mohammed Azruddin was cleared and was back with the Hyderabad Cricket Association or Srishant was saying that he's going to consider playing for India again. Um, but as I've read more and more, what I've realized is that there's a lot more to it when it comes to associate cricket. So when we say something like this has happened with uh, a cricketer from you know Australia, England, uh, Pakistan, even and India, I, I still understand. Uh, I still am angry about it because uh, at the end of the day, they had all the means that they needed. They had all the support that they needed, and even if it was you know a mistake, it wasn't. There's very likely no reason for. 
there's very likely no money crunch which led them there. And on the other hand, Heath Streak was coaching the Zimbabwe team and doing a great job at it uh, for you know three plus years on barely any salary. And there he goes and, you know, it doesn't even spot fix. He's a coach at the end of the day, but he shares information which betters, a betting community can use to make a few thousand dollars. And, and that might sound like, oh, why, why would you do that for a few thousand dollars? But that means a lot in, in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwean currency. And, and when I read that whole story, it, it made me feel that, yeah, there's more to it than, you know, what's on the surface. And, and similar with Brendan Taylor, who came out with his, um, I don't know if you read his um, tweet where he came out with the whole story. Um, right. But you have to be a little sympathetic to that. Uh, yes, he came out, you know, a couple of years later and he didn't report it to the ICC right away. Um, but it's, it's important to keep in mind the circumstances that he was going through as a player, the uncertainties that Zimbabwe cricket is going through and you know, um, uncertainties around his own future, how he's making money, all those things do come into play. So it's, it's very easy to sit on a high horse and be like, oh, that was corruption, it's horrible, these people are criminals, and, and you know, just rub that away. But the truth is there's a lot more to it, and, and you know, it's, it's sort, of the, uh, sort of the ethical question that sometimes people ask, would you, you know, steal bread to feed your family or, or not? Like, there's not really a good answer to it, and... Uh, and it's, it's one of those things. So, um, yeah, that's been on my mind. And I think we should, and going forward, I feel like we should um, just keep that in mind before we judge cricket, especially if associate cricket, people who've done part-time jobs and other things to keep themselves in cricket, which by, in, by itself is a lot of sacrifice. I agree with you completely because all of what you just said, um, I was thinking those same things because... I read Brendan Taylor's account of what happened, you know, when he was in India. Like the whole pretense that he was drawn to India to talk about these business dealings and the whole thing with the, he was, you know, pressured to use cocaine. And then the next day they're like threatening to blackmail him with it. It's like almost out of this bad Bollywood script. <laughs> but that's, you know, if that's what happened, that's, can you imagine like being in a foreign country and realizing you're trapped? And at that moment, all you can think of is getting to safety, getting back to your family, getting back to your children. So I don't blame him um, for his actions after that, you know, uh, after they kind of threatened him with blackmail. But yes, the actions preceding that, you know, what, it's been like 20, 25 years, or even you can go 30 years back, and the scourge of match fixing was is burnt into the minds of fans who've been following the game since then. And it's... And it's insane that it still happens despite all the efforts by ICC and, you know, the local cricket boards to take actions to prevent this or to, you know, minimize it. And so I feel in this case, especially with Brendan coming forward, even though it was delayed, uh, like you said, the same circumstances that, you know, we talked about the, the kind of state that Zimbabwe cricket is in um, and the importance of Brendan Taylor to the setup that, there could have been some leniency, but I also get it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because you want to make sure that you have very, very strict uh, standards as far as addressing this. So on one hand, I'm impressed that ICC is not like backing down, uh, but then I also feel for the player. Essentially, it all boils down to uh, a no win situation for anybody here. Right. And uh, it's just sad. It's just sad, but 
hopefully it is a lesson for aspiring cricketers and young um, cricketers to be on their guard at all times. And, you know, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so what's on my mind uh, this past week is obviously the selection of the Indian cricket team in limited overs. So India is going to be playing the West Indies in India, uh, both in uh, three ODIs, three T20 internationals. Um, my biggest thing from this, and I'm sure everyone is aware of the squad, so I don't want to like go through each name. Um, but obviously the big news is Rohit Sharma is back as captain, um, you know, uh, taking over from an interim captain in KL Rahul, who led in South Africa. Uh, so it's good to see him back, but I'm also very happy to see Virat Kohli <laughs> It's still in the team. I don't know why my cynical mind went to, oh, he's going to be conveniently injured or uh, he's going to make himself <laughs> unavailable to, you know, get some rest or to spend some time with family. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see him in. Um, the big, uh, you know, we always talk about who's in, who's out in uh, team selections. Now, obviously, I'm excited about Ravi Bishnoi being back uh, from the little that I've seen of him in IPL he seems like he could be the, the spinner that India is looking for in limited overs obviously very early days and I think we should be very careful with our expectations on him um, but I think he's got the goods and we just need to give him a fair run um, but on the other hand uh, it's kind of sad to see Rutaraj out of the T20 squad he didn't really get a chance um, but I'm guessing with Rohit Sharma coming back in that you know, someone had to make way and that was going to be him. Um, but overall, I'm happy with the squads. I mean, no team selections are going to be, you know, something that everybody's happy with, like 100%. Um, but given the stocks that India has, uh, and I'm sure you'll mention Prithvi Shah later, but, you know, I really feel that given the, the setup that we have, given the players that we have, uh, this is probably close to the best squads that they could come up with. Yeah, I mean, I think um, they've done a good job. But yeah, I, I do agree. There's a couple which I didn't quite um, understand. To your point, um, you know, Rituraj not being in the T20 team, I feel like we have plenty of openers already. So I, I don't really right. think he's going to be used anyways. Um, but yeah, I do believe that considering the performance that Prithvi Shah had in Sri Lanka, he should have been continued with. Uh, what I do like about the squad is they've clearly identified that the middle overs wicket taking problem is there. And I think that's what India fixed between the 2017 Champions Trophy and 2019 World Cup with Chahal and, yeah. and Kuldeep. And they've brought back Kuldeep, which I don't know if that's going to work out, but uh, at least they're trying things, you know, with Ravi Bishnoi, with Kuldeep. And, and I think that's important considering the World Cup is 15, 17 months away. So, um, and then we're not playing too many ODIs these days. So, um, trying to make sure we do that. And as well for the T20 World Cup later this year, uh, trying to figure out who our wicket takers are. The one other person, I guess, who maybe should have made it was Varun Chakravarti, who at least should have been in the T20 squad. Right. He's not right. the fittest enough. So, maybe that was one of the reasons to not consider him for ODIs. But at least in the T20 squad, because he didn't bowl badly at all in the T20 World Cup. And I feel like um, he's a solid defensive bowler. If you have two defensive bowlers in him and Bumrah, and then maybe somebody like Bishnoi as the third attacking bowler, um, and and then I think we have a very good uh, chance in, in T20 as well. So um, just one thing that's amiss, but 
we have more series coming along. Sri Lanka comes along next. So we never know. We might see Varun Chakravarti then. I mean, speaking of Varun Chakravarti, also another person who's forgotten is T. Natarajan. You know, uh, a year ago we were talking about him being the probably the key bowler, at least in the T20 setup, you know, with his Yorkers and all of that. And I don't know if he's injured, but we haven't seen him or heard about him in a while. Yeah, he's been injured for a while. Um, <laughs> Okay. Okay. I, I I still hope that you know he gets a longer run. Um, but it's good to see Avishkan uh, in the setup. There, I know there's a lot of excitement around him, so hopefully he can come through. Uh, I didn't mention Deepak Huda, who's in who's in the squad. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how he goes about. Uh, but yes, speaking about Kuldeep, you know, obviously that was a headlines when the selections were announced. Um, I personally don't think he has done anything to warrant like a return to the squad. It's more really out of lack of options. Obviously, Ashwin, I don't know what the expectations were uh, in South Africa, but obviously because the series was lost and he didn't really make a, a difference uh, and he's injured apparently. So I, I guess we'll see. Uh, I'm fine with him being back in the squad. It's just that I, I can't argue like who else are you going to put in there, right? He has... He has a tra- track record, at least. He's a known quantity um, for the captain. So um, I'm hopeful that... I- I'm more than hopeful. I hope that, or I wish, for his sake, that he does well because he seems like someone who, you know, who loses confidence a, a little too quickly and a little too easily. So I hope that, uh, especially coming up against a West Indies batting lineup uh, in full flow, <laughs> it may dent his confidence if things don't go well. But... Uh, I'm hoping that he grabs his chance and, you know, makes his place permanent. It looks as if uh, there's a little bit of a fire started uh, in one of the stands. Because I can tell you, have all got themselves together. They're not about to go and stand on the boundary. That's Clive Roy, the match referee, going to speak to the umpires and the captain and players. This is a very disappointing uh, performance by these folk here in um, in Calcutta. The Bengalis love their cricket, but they've got to learn to lose as well. Well, they look to me as if they're coming off the ground. This is uh, sensational stuff. This game is going to have to be awarded to uh, the Sri Lankans. So 1996, I was 10 years old. Um, I was living in Saudi Arabia with my parents who were expatriates. Um, and I remember I was into soccer. I was, I was crazy about soccer because Saudi Arabia, for anybody who knows, you know, they're crazy about the game. And really, they're really there's no other game that exists, at least from their perspective. And I never would have imagined in 1996, I would start following this game called cricket. And then 25 years on, or like 26 years on, and it makes me feel ancient. (laughs) I have been following this game so closely. And I really thought this would be a good opportunity to just kind of get personal and just kind of like, you know, we always talk about the game and the players and the teams, but I thought, you know, it would be nice to just take a step back and kind of think about ourselves as fans and our journey from the time we started following the game to where we are now and how that informs 
our perception of the teams and the players, our own expectations of them, and how that colors our emotions. Um, so I'm so glad to have Mayank, uh, my fellow co-host, and also a special guest in Sakib, uh, host of Cricket with an Accent podcast. Uh, so a special welcome to Sakib. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here. And I hope uh, you don't regret this because, you know, your, your listenership could take a hit because this, this can go in a couple of directions. And I'm just nervous. I've never been a guest after doing <laughs> close to 375 episodes between cricket and tennis. And I used wow. to always joke around with my wife. I said, nobody invites me, even though I don't want to be invited. But that's kind of, <laughs> kind of you know, it's like public opinion. People listen to me, so they don't think uh, I should be speaking. But uh, yeah, I mean, don't tell me I didn't warn you guys, but I, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. We'll, we'll find out at the end of this episode if this was a good idea or not. And who knows, maybe other, others will invite you now going forward. Uh, but Sakib, why, why don't you just tell a little bit about yourself uh, for our listeners? I think uh, anyone who's listening to us, hobbyist uh, doing cricket podcasts, and uh, I think uh, all three of us are in the US, we promote our podcast in the Eastern time zone. I think Mayank is uh, central, right, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I think our audience is the same. I think it's going to be uh, people who really know you also know me and vice versa. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, as a fan, I never thought I'll have like a social presence of that to like a podcast. I'm someone who's not too fond of my voice. I didn't activate my voicemail on myself for the longest time, even at work. It was just Sakib Ali, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, never. And then here I am doing a podcast because I was gifted a a MacBook on my 40th by my sister. And I said, I don't need this. I don't know how to use one. And it just stayed in my, you know, somewhere in, in, in the house, in some closet. I didn't even open it. My birthday is in March and I didn't open the MacBook till October. People will say I'm mm-hmm. spoiled, but I was not happy. It's an expensive gift plus useless for me. Okay. So I used to listen to a lot of tennis podcasts and uh, I'm a bigger tennis fan if people know me. Tennis is like I always say, a favorite cousin, but uh, sorry, uh, cricket is a favorite cousin and tennis is my sibling, you know, so always made clear from the mid eighties. And then I started, you know, listening to David Law's podcast and me and a bunch of friends used to discuss uh, tennis to death over emails, test cricket too, but tennis mainly. So I said to these guys, look, uh, why don't we record our conversations? Because sometimes, you know, one guy is in India, one guy is a doctor who's in, you know, San Francisco and we wait for emails and sometimes you say, be right back and you never come back. Let's do an audio session. And uh, this is how my podcast was born. Like one of my friends on and this cousin, uh, Sharon, who's also been a guest on my podcast was doing his PhD in Harvard. So we were just chatting. I say, hey, if anyone can use, uh, can show me how to record a podcast. He said, well, you need Apple products for that. Like you can do in GarageBand. I, and of course I didn't know what GarageBand is. And the rest is history. Then Sharon show, oh, if you have a MacBook, come to my office. And one day from Framingham, Massachusetts, it was raining. I drove all the way to Cambridge and the hollowed lawns of Harvard. He showed me how to use GarageBand. And this is how Tennis with an Accent was born for someone who didn't have a voicemail activated. And then we recorded a three minute episode where I had my pause, giggle, stopped. Then again, you know, I ran through a bunch of sentences and we released this on SoundCloud. And similarly, then I knew a few people on Twitter who reached out to me, said, we like your tennis podcast. Why don't you do one cricket? I said, cricket, I don't even follow. I just follow Indian team and that two test matches and World Cup. And I have right. no clue what's going on in the IPL. And, you know, a long drawn answer. And that's what, you know, uh, my wife calls it a midlife crisis. I do two podcasts. It's just <laughs> my beard was going to go gray again. But yeah, I put my hand into too many things. And um, 
And I was nervous coming on your show. And uh, the worst thing one can do is I spoke to Jared Kimber three days ago. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing you can do because he was my guest and now I'm your guest. And I'm saying, holy crap, you know, this guy <laughs> is such, an, such a brilliant guy. He's thinking through my questions and giving these insightful answers. And Benny and Mayank, you know, I'm going to be their guest. Not that anybody expects me to be like Kimber, but it was just like, <laughs> how do I say it? It's like playing, playing like a very different kind of a baller in nets and going into a match as a different opposition, but here we are. <laughs> You're not being very kind to yourself, but I, I think your perspective as someone who has not just done a podcast on cricket, but you also have one on twen- uh, tennis, um, you have talked with so many people from different walks of life, so to speak, I mean, especially as it relates to their fandom or whatever their expertise is in the game. And you have been informed and you have been educated by that. So you bring with yourself some perspectives that I think we all would be you know, uh, fortunate to listen to. So, and I think this is very true for me and Mike and even our other two co-hosts as well, is that podcasting, at least for us, is one way to kind of stay engaged with the game uh, while we're away from India or abroad. Uh, and that's really the idea when me, Mike, Himanish, and Nish, the four of us got together and started this, you know, in the middle of the pandemic um, and with you know, India touring Australia, we just thought, okay, let's, everybody's having a podcast. Why don't we start one? You know, that was kind of attitude. And for us, since then, it has been a great way to engage uh, with the game we love and talk to people that we normally would not talk to. Um, And so I think in that category would be you, because I I don't know what other situation we would have ended up having this conversation. So I'm really curious about each, how each one of us really got into the game. And when I say, how did we get into the game? You know, when did you first become aware of this game called cricket? And like, what made you follow it? Maybe you may not have been an outright crazy fan who devoted hours every day to the game, but just started following the game, following like a team or a player. So I'll start with you, Mike. Um, How old were you when you first started following the game? And like, how did that happen? Yeah, so I think for me, um, growing up in Delhi, I used to, there was a park near my house where I used to go and play as as a kid, and I was probably six or seven years old, um, and, you know, when you're at that age, there's always a parent or, you know, somebody, some sort of a guardian who's watching you, and uh, one of my friend's grandfather was usually that guardian, and, you know, he had watched a lot of Sunil Gavaskar, and I was the smallest in the group, and I used to hit, hit a lot of sixes, so he immediately call, started calling me Gavaskar. And I did not know who that was, but I'd heard him in commentary and I'd heard, seen like stats on TV where Gavaskar was the highest run scorer followed by Sachin uh, at that point in Indian Test cricket. And that that's how I figured out that I was any good at it. And that's how I really started getting into it. Um, and since then, yeah, just uh, continued watching a lot of the game, um, whether it was, you know, it could be summer break and the only thing on could be Zimbabwe versus Bangladesh Test Series and I'd watch every single ball. Um, so, you know, that's how I started getting into it. Eventually played at the school level, also played, uh, you know, took coaching with a uh, proper coach uh, who also coached the UP Ranji team. And, uh, you know, that's that's really my my way of getting started in the game. And, and ever since, there's definitely been ups and downs, but constantly been following and, and staying in touch with what's happening, specifically in Indian cricket, but world cricket as well. Where in Delhi did you take coaching? 
Uh, I went to Jasola Sports Complex. Um, so the coach was Rajinder Singh Hans, and he won the Ranji Trophy with UP and as, as with Mohammed Kef as captain in 2004 or five, while he was also on the side coaching us and a couple of other sports academies. So that way it was really fantastic because you know we used to hear stories about Ranji Trophy cricket. We used to hear his own stories as well because he's he was a pretty accomplished player spinner himself with. 350 Ranji wickets and he was considered number five in in India at that point but of course the top four were Bedi, Prasanna uh, and and the likes so he never really got a chance to play for India but he was you know he was considered just below their league so um, that was a really fantastic way of you know not just learning cricket but also learning about stories about Ranji Trophy how they traveled uh, things like that and obviously those things have evolved a lot now uh, but it, it sort of you know, taught you how tough it is to win for certain teams, uh, teams, you know, which are, you know, not the Bombays and Delhis and, and Tamil Nadu's of, of Ranji Trophy, the challenges that they come over, the limited budget that they have, um, all those aspects were very, were things that we learned at a young age. And, and it was pretty interesting that way. And, um, you know, sort of realizing the challenges that these cricketers have come over. Sakib, how about you? How did you first get into cricket? All right, so I'll answer this question. With the remark you made, you know, like uh, uh, before preceding the question. So a lot of people accuse me in my friend circle that I sometimes wear the humble ID way too much. But I'm pretty quick to realize when I came on Twitter, you know, what kind of knowledge people have. Like Mayank himself, he writes a blog. He's very technical. Himanish is right about variations and, you know, wrist angle and, you know, stuff that, you know, my generation when we were young, the Durdashan generation going into cable, we didn't even know that existed. You know, the, we inhale, you know, we consume the game from Sports Star, Sports World, Doordarshan, Times of India, you know, where basically writers were saying how glorious a shot was, or it was a pressure situation, or, you know, right. st- stuff like that. Or, or Imran Khan looks like a movie star, you know, the commentary was different, you know, <laughs> not that he didn't look like a movie star, but there was no need to mention that. So, right. so my thing is, when I look at Himanesh, Gurkirat, Mayank, and so many others like Vijay. So my biggest strength is I quickly know and, you know, the temperature check of the room. And I know it's, it's better not to give half-baked opinions. You know, it was tough because in the beginning, when I started talking cricket on Twitter, I would give a lot of nostalgia. But very quickly, you realize that, you know, nostalgia is good, but that's not your only uh, ticket to fame. You've got to back it up with some knowledge because a lot of uh, people, that's how the conversation evolves. They're willing to challenge your facts, your narrative, your story. So that's why I'm kind of, uh, I kind of knew my place. I know the game in a very different way, but in a global audience where someone can quote tweet your silly tweet and embarrass you. And that's not my personality. I'm not going to go out there and just, you know, get in a, get pushed around and, and also not argue for the wrong sake. So I quickly knew I didn't have, you know, fully baked opinions because the way I learned my cricket, I was good in a WhatsApp group or my friends where I can take a liberty to show off or at least say something. But in the global audience, I was very quick always to know, you know, what balls to leave outside the off stump. Don't touch them. If you don't know them, <laughs> don't play those shots. And the question, yeah, I mean, I, I was that generation that saw the tail end of Gavaskar. So I remember the 83 World Cup vaguely. My father and my cousin, I think, listening to the couple day match on radio. Uh, there was a power outage in Old Delhi and they were on the terrace and everybody's going back and forth. The tea was going upstairs and they were enjoying and I had no idea what cricket was. But I, and then also remember, I think, Balwinder Sandhu, clean bowling Greenwich. I have a vague memory of two events on a black and white TV, that, and a Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Wimbledon final before I got into sports. I remember my dad watching those. 
So on the backdrop of the World Cup, when West Indies famously and famously came back and got angry at India and destroyed India in all the test matches, I think there were two draws, if I'm not mistaken, but we lost the series. And my first memory was Greenwich belting us around for 190-something. And then Indian team gets to bat just before the end of day's play and we lose five or four wickets for 12 runs. Gavaskar is caught behind of Dujon by Marshall. So that kind of stayed for, for a long, long time for my entry into cricket. And uh, it was enjoyable, but it was not enjoyable that the team my dad introduced me to was getting beat up. As a, as a young boy, you don't know how to process that. <laughs> so West Indies really made you know uh, a mockery of that Indian team because it was a revenge tour. They came back and settled score after that World Cup upset, which some argue is arguably the biggest upset in cricket history. If you look at the context, you know, how India yeah. was and they were the two-time defending champions and, you know, how it played out. It's funny you mentioned that as your entry point because mine was somewhat equally traumatic because, like I mentioned, the 1996, uh, 1996 was the year that I actually started following the game and uh, very specifically, it was a 96 World Cup. Um, I was not into cricket at all. I barely knew that this game existed because, like I said, uh, at that time I was into soccer and tennis. I mean, those were the days my I would consider my sporting heroes to be Roberto Carlos and Pete Sampras. You know, that's how that's how old I am. And um, it was my dad who first kind of introduced me to cricket. He said, "Hey, do you want to go watch this game at our friend's house?" Um, it's a cricket world cup. And I was like, sure, why not? Uh, I have I know nothing, but can't hurt. And I still don't remember which, I think it was a league game, India versus Australia. And I think Sachin Tendulkar was belting the boulders around. That was my first introdu introduction to cricket, first introduction to Sachin Tendulkar. And almost immediately there was some sort of thrill. And I don't know if, the, if it was because of the Indian link, right? When I followed other sports and other players, it's like, you know, they're like a Brazilian sporting hero or an American sporting hero. But for me, here was like an Indian sporting hero. And at that age, that seemed to be, you know, that seemed to click for me. But the biggest uh, or the, the thing that still sticks out to me right now is the World Cup semifinal, um, India versus Sri Lanka. And just how that Indian innings unfolded, you know, Sachin Tendulkar, it, it was almost like a movie, you know, like this lone hero, standing in the rubble and fighting to his last breath. And especially with, you know, like when they set the stands on fire, it was just, it was just crazy. And I remember as a kid, as a 10 year old, I, I'm not, I don't understand what's happening. I just know that India were, or they declared Sri Lanka the winner um, in that semifinal. And I remember like we left our friend's house and we stopped, my, my dad and I, we, we had to stop at a grocery store and my dad went inside and I'm sitting in the car and I started crying, like just tears just flowing. And I'm just so sad. And I'm like, why am I crying about this game? And since then, I never looked back. And it has been, uh, like I said, 25 years, 25 years with a lot of ups and downs as a fan. Um, because back in those days, I would watch and follow every game, not just India games, but like if Australia was playing South Africa or West Indies was playing Pakistan, I would follow those games. If I was not watching them, I would still be like checking for scores, however possible. And I would even listen to radio commentary whenever possible. Again, these are really, really uh, old times. And then, you know, life has happened and I kind of waxed and waned with like college. And then eventually, you know, like I got married and having kids. 
and it's kind of just you know it's not it's not been the same since then but somehow i've never been able to shake it off i've never been able to shake off that feeling of being so addicted to a game that even if i'm not watching it i'm still reading about it i'm still listening to podcasts or something like that so i'm just curious if you guys have any anything that really sticks out in all these years that you've been following the game um any tournament or series or just a specific phase that throughout the years that still has that kind of still sticks out in your memory and kind of it's a great example of your relationship with the game um let's let's go with you sakib do you, do you have anything like that uh, i think you kind of summarize what most fans go through right we've all had that relationship that emotional moment so and i'm older than both of you so i grew up on an indian team that wasn't as world class as this virat kohli led team or in your mm-hmm. face and you know they're aggressive that winning abroad is a criteria our times winning at home uh was considered like okay at least we need to start winning at home winning abroad comes later you know get your right. home in order first so i don't know i mean this is a deep question i have to just go back in memory bank i mean the javed me that six was very painful i didn't watch it i was praying with my closed eyes that you know uh, he gets out uh and then uh that same i think the year after when imran came and led the first pakistani team to win on indian soil that famous or uh, infamous bangalore test match where gavaskar scored 96 and it was a rank turner from day one with ikbal qasim and tawseef ahmed going through our guys and uh, we lost that match by i think by like 12 runs i hope vijay is not listening because i'm going to mess up some stats <laughs> so yeah there were a lot of painful memories like that and then uh, the tied test match and then uh, india's uh, horrendous tour under azhar to australia where we lost 4-0 that's my year of my board exams and you know i used to bring radio to school and i became famous because i was the only 10th grader who had a transistor and seniors would come and borrow it from me and never give back so <laughs> so yeah there are a lot of weird memories i mean uh, and uh, maybe i'm a ho- uh, hopeless romantic cricket fan i think i have a lot of good painful memories that i, I you know because this indian team is world class everybody knows like what happened at the gaba and uh, what's happened you know this year in england and how these guys have been doing in ms dhoni for the last decade So this Indian team has a lot of good stories but I grew But up- can I say can, can I say I feel like we probably we we can appreciate this team more because of that right because I feel like some of the fans right now they probably started following the game like Indian fans let's be specific Indian cricket fans probably started following the game in the last 5 years 6 years and they've been spoiled you know by Virat Kohli's you know with the Virat Kohli's the Bumrahs uh and even if you go a little bit back you have the donies ashwins and all of that uh we started well you go a little bit even further yeah. but at least when i did you know we had some great stars but we never had results go in our favor and so we would live through times where we knew that india would roll over every team in their backyard but if they go abroad let's get ready <laughs> emotionally this is going to be a thrashing and that's how it always used to happen uh but i feel like now we are able so since because of that those experiences we are able to appreciate the current team a little bit better as fans yeah but that but that's the part of evolution right i live in new england when i came here in the 90s boston red sox were considered cursed and i was here mm-hmm. you know every year you know people would talk football and baseball and i worked a lot of uh, hours at a liquor store uh and a convenience store during my college days and the chat was like you always talk to the locals ask about how the game is and they were like oh they lost again and then 
in 2004, Red Sox won the first World Series and then they win a few more. And Patriots a few years ago in 2001, uh, now they're a dynasty. Even your entry point, right? You came with Tendulkar. You know, for my generation, we waited for Tendulkar, right? We didn't have anyone mm-hmm. who could take on the Pattersons or the Holdings or Imran's or the Wasim's. I mean, there was tail end of Gavskar and then they were like Vengsakar. Uh, Azar was good, but you know, they all had limitations. In some way, Azar wasn't a good traveler or the ribcage bowling would always settle him even though he was a glorious mm-hmm. player. Vang Sarkar was a shaky starter. So yeah, so Tendulkar, I remember in 89, when he was picked, we have read a lot about him. So I remember the school bus ride and then came home and he was out. And then my dad, you know, you know, he not work from home. He would always uh, sometimes skip work because of cricket. And uh, he said, yeah, this guy is really good. He scored 15 runs and uh, he's a young boy. And then, and, and, the, and, the, and the rest is history. I mean, so uh, I would say before Mayan comes here, I would say the 93 series under Azhar was the first mm-hmm. series for my generation of fans uh, against England when, they had, when we have come back from South Africa, lost one day series, I think 5-2 and test series pretty badly. So we started winning against a formidable England side because prior to that, I had seen three or four series and they had only won once. I think that was against New Zealand in 88 uh, under Wengsecker. And then India didn't have a home series till 93. We were traveling abroad, Pakistan, New Zealand, England, Australia. There was one off test, I think, with Sri Lanka somewhere in 1990. So Tendulkar's debut was in Pakistan in Karachi, I think. And then he didn't play a full series in India till 93. And that's a series where Azhar was given the first test as like an ultimatum. It was one test and one one day and they would decide his fate because he was failing as a captain and even as a batsman wasn't among too many runs. And then the rest is history. These guys turned around with Raju, Kumble, and uh, I think Rajesh Johan. I think they formed a tandem and India started having some great moments at home. So I think that was just the beginning of a new era. You know, and right. then winning, I think, a Hero Cup uh, a couple of years later. And, uh, and I left India in 95. So I didn't watch the World Cup you're talking about. I got the DVD of the Pakistan match, not DVD, VHS, of the India-Pakistan match for $20. It was available in the U.S. two days after the match and there were no internet live streams or recording. <laughs> yeah. So I was yeah. talking to my friends on phone and they, they were heartbroken. They would tell me what happened to the India-Sri Lanka semifinal. But that's the period of my life when I was becoming a Jordan fan. And I could, of, of course, continue to follow tennis in the U.S. But I had to wait for live cricket, I think, till 99 when Dish Network announced their telecasting World Cup. And my sister used to run a Desi Indian store and I came from college to grab like a samosa. And she said, look, there's something called a Dish Network coming and there'll be Indian channels on a Dish mm-hmm. and a Cricket World Cup. So I put $500 on my student visa card and got that World Cup. And I was one of the, you know, I didn't know any, I didn't have any Indian friends. So there was no chance for me to go on a solekha.com or pool, hey guys, I can put 50. Let's 10 of us get together and watch. I didn't have many Indian friends. The only Indian friend I had here was not into cricket. Okay. So, and that didn't stop me, you know, like I put, I didn't have much of a credit card limit, but I, got the 99 World Cup. And that's when first time I think I saw Javed. I've seen Ganguly carry drinks in the 91 tour to Australia, but I haven't seen him live. And that's when I got introduced to a new brand of Indian players. The only people I was familiar with were Srinath, Azhar and Tendulkar. And that World Cup was very special for us because to see cricket live in US for the first time, you know, was, was a thrill. And then, you know, yeah. the rest is history. We, we kept getting pay-per-view cricket for the next few years till Willow became a channel that you could subscribe on a on an annual package or something. Yeah, 87 World Cup was like my first year, you know, first time watching a World Cup. So I remember in the school bus, 
I had seen this Australian team come to India a year before. So everybody was picking Pakistan to win the World Cup. Even Indian fans knew like, you know, it was their World Cup to lose because they have beaten India 6-1 in a one-day series, a 5-1. And the only win we got was because at Hyderabad, Azhar ran Abdul Qadir out when the scores were tied. So if we won by, you know, India had lost less wickets. So everybody knew India and Pakistan could go to the final and Pakistan will win because they were just a better team. And this is also on the heels of Javed Miyadat 6 and, you know, their dominance, which had just started. So I tried to be the cool kid and a bunch of seniors were talking in a school bus. I said, no, Australia will win the World Cup. And this is after India had beaten them on Diwali one day, which was again okay. one of the highlights of my... Azhar was my favorite player. Then he took 50, scored 54 and took 3 for 12. Go and see if you haven't seen the cotton bowl of McDermott. I mean, that's one of the best cotton bowls ever. The shot would have taken his face off. So it was at the Kotla. Me and my dad were distributing Diwali sweets and we were watching that match in different people's houses because my dad had to make some Diwali run for his friends. Mm-hmm. So yeah, next day in school, I predicted Australia is going to win the World Cup. Everybody laughed at me. And they won the World Cup like three weeks down the road and I became a superstar in my bus. And some of the seniors <laughs> said, okay, let's take his advice. He knows cricket. And I was in sixth grade. I didn't know anything. But that's the only time I went bullish. And I don't know why I picked Australia. And then uh, there's another important part of that World Cup is uh, the next week, uh, uh, I went to Pakistan. Because my aunt was attending a wedding. She had family in Pakistan. So my dad said, take Saki with you. I would want him to watch a semifinal at Lahore. And we didn't know how tickets were scarce. So I got a mm-hmm. visa. I went with my aunt and cousin to Lahore. Uh, it's on a second trip to watch the World Cup. And uh, of course, I couldn't get tickets because the people I was staying with, you know, they said tickets sold out and it's like black or whatever. You have to spend a lot of money. So anyway, I was happy watching cricket in Pakistan and took like a week off from school. And I talked a lot of trash when Pakistan lost uh, to all these teenagers who were Pakistanis who were mm-hmm. giving me a hard time. And finally, I have my say when they lost. And, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't have any place to go at the wedding. And boy, did they make me cry the next day because when India lost, <laughs> that was the day of the reception. And I was yeah. avoiding going. And, you know, that was like one of the most painful mem- memories. Then they, they gave me a soda. They said, oh, no, no, he's, he's our guest. He's our man. He's crying. Because I could talk trash, but they were like teenagers and, and men in the early 20s. And I was like 11, I think. And I talked a big game. I was foul mouth. But uh, next day, I was the only Indian. And their hospitality, you know, turned into sledging. Oh, <laughs> and uh, wow. when uh, I think who Salim Jafar got out, he was the last man to get out. And I was shopping with my aunt uh, before we were going to go at the wedding in Lahore. And I've never seen Benny anything like this. All TVs shut down at the same time. And Pakistan lost the semifinal. And I got so scared, even though I was the only Indian kid. Nobody knew I'm Indian. I was so happy, but I couldn't show my happiness that they lost. I'm standing in a super in a super bazaar. All TVs shut down at the same time. The guests, uh, sorry, the, the customers are unhappy. Anything like that, same. If India yeah. loses, you know, same right. thing would have happened there. I, I contained my joy. Then I went home and I just started giving it to my host. He was kind to me, but then at the wedding, you know, the they, they scores were even next day when we were bowled out against England. And couldn't, you know, couldn't advance to the finals. Because I was happy India had beaten Australia in the league match. Had we won that semis, we would have won the Lions Cup. But yeah. uh, it was supposed to be an England-Australia final at the Eden Gardens. Both uh, hosts lost in the semis. That was quite right. the memory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, around 2001, you know, we'd, we'd been following cricket where, uh, as I think you mentioned, you know, we were doing reasonably okay at home. But whenever we went abroad there was basically no hope like we it was how badly are we going to lose and and that's when 
India toward England and um, went on to draw the Test Series 1-1. And Dravid had a summer of like a dream. And, and that's where he, I think he scored 200s, might have been 300s, I can't remember at this point, um, and was the man of the series. And India walked away 1-1. Uh, um, and I think a, a few months after that, we also drew in Australia, of course, a depleted Australia. But nonetheless, that English summer where we came back 1-1 was, in my mind, you know, uh, the first time I'd seen India fight abroad and, and do as well as they did. And that's how Dravid ended up becoming my childhood hero. And obviously, at that same time, I was also taking coaching and I was batting at three for my club. So I used to think, yeah, I want to be like Dravid. This is this is what I want to, what I want to do. And um, and he remains my childhood hero, of course, not pursuing a career in cricket, but there's so many different qualities that he has that I, I still consider him a hero. Um, so that definitely is a series that stands out for sure. But it's it's also hard to forget the 2011 World Cup, obviously at a much later stage in our you know following career. But the reason that is special is I watched a lot of the games live in the stadium. Um, so I watched the semifinal, the quarterfinal. I watched a league game in Delhi. Uh, which was against Netherlands, I believe. I almost flew to Nagpur to watch the game against South Africa, but in the end, it didn't work out. Um, so I watched a number of these games live in the stadium, and that was just another feeling, you know, to be amongst 40,000 people supporting the same team and just singing the national anthem. It, I, as much as, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't really care for being too nationalistic and all of that, but that just was another level of, you know, fandom and, and, um, just the joy that you get when you're with so many people, you barely know any of them. And, and right. the quarterfinal in 2011 is definitely something that stands out in my mind because beating Australia in a world cup was, you know, didn't happen. Like from 99, I don't think they lost a game until the 2011 quarterfinal. And when India beat them and we were walking out of the stadium in Ahmedabad, this is of course the old Motera, a really, really crappy stadium. Um, the worst experience that you can possibly imagine, but everybody was just so happy and random people were hugging each other and, and just everybody was happy and dancing along. And our uh, walk to the hotel was about an hour away. It probably took us two hours, but honestly felt like five minutes because we were just having so much fun. And um, I think that definitely stands out for sure. I, I'm so glad you mentioned the 2001 series, um, India versus Australia. Because for me personally, that was when I, I could say I fell in love with test cricket. Because till then, between 96 and 2001, I was only following one day cricket. Um, test cricket kind of passively, not very interested. Um, but just the, the whole, the theater, you know, of the India versus, Australia, uh, India versus Australia, because Australia were coming off these unbeaten streak. Uh, I think they were 16 before they lost. Um, and then against this ragtag side, I think at one point India played with one fast bowler, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 11. And it's, it's like, it's not supposed to happen. India's not supposed to beat Australia, but they did. And I remember like sneaking in, like in school, like sneaking in between classes, trying to catch like the, the game, you know, in the television, in the cafeteria where they were, you know, people would be watching the game. So that sticks with me. And there are like several series and tournaments for me that kind of stick out i mean not just any game involving india like the 90 the 99 world cup semi-final between australia and south africa you know that run out which is happens to be uh, something we feature prominently in our last wicket uh website but that game scarred me for a while the fact that you could lose 
in such dramatic fashion and in such high stakes. Uh, then of course the 2001 series, uh, and it's not just the big moments, even you know, uh, India losing in the final of uh, the 2003 World Cup. And that broke me for a couple of days where I could not function. Uh, 2007 was another horrible memory. <laughs> we didn't even make it past the, uh, you know, we didn't make it to the knockouts. And then followed by the highs of the 2007 T20 World Cup win, the 2011 win, and as recently as the GABA win um, last year. So a lot of these series, a lot of these games kind of remind me how much I'm invested in the game because when my favorite team does well, I'm happy, I'm, I'm overjoyed. I feel like I've achieved something personally. But at the same time, if my team loses, um, it takes a lot out of me. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who can just be like, oh, it's a game and carry on with the rest of their day. But for me, my, my wife always hopes India wins because she knows that if India loses, I'm going to be grumpy for the rest of the day. So that's how much this sport has kind of taken hold of me. And I was trying to think, what is it about sport or what is it about cricket in, in my case? why is it having such a strong pull in my life? Like, what is it about following sports that has this effect on us? And, and I'll speak for myself and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well. Um, but I feel like for me, it's almost like be, behind all of this, behind like following my favorite team, behind, uh, behind me following like cricket for what it is, a sport, uh, it really boils down to this cult of personality because like I said earlier, in the 96, it was really more than anything else, Sachin Tendulkar, the, the, the person, the idea, the concept of Sachin Tendulkar that kind of attracted me to the game. It was like, I, I, you know, like, you know how they call like Sachin Tendulkar fans or Virat Kohli fans. Um, if, if, you know, social media existed back then, uh, I, I probably would be in that camp where I would defend Sachin against everyone and everything. Um, and I was, you know, that kind of drew me to the game. And then it passed on after Sachin Tendulkar, it was MS Dhoni for a while. Um, and then Virat Kohli to an extent. And now I'm in this weird phase where I don't really have a strong favorite player as such. And strangely enough, it coincides with a time where I don't feel as connected to the game. I don't know if any of you can identify with that, but sometimes I follow the game and I feel very disconnected from it, even when I'm watching an India game. So I, I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, both of your thoughts on what is cricket to you? Like, how does it bind? How, how strong is that bond between you and the game? Are there times when you wish like, you know, I wish I wasn't as interested in cricket as I am right now? I think, I think I've evolved for sure uh, as a fan. Uh, I think as a 10, 11, maybe 12 year old, when, you know, the 2003 World Cup, you mentioned that, and India was doing pretty good, except for the two games against Australia. I think it was around the same time that, you know, the BJP government un under Atal Bihari Vajpayee used to talk about India shining. So I think those two concepts as a 12-year-old came together in my head that, yeah, we're seeing India do great things at the world stage. And I saw that as a reflection in the cricket team. And that's how I started associating, you know, their success or their failure with India's success and India's failure. Um, but I think I've definitely evolved as, uh, as time has gone on. And I think after the 2010s is when I started realizing that, you know, it's a lot more than your favorite player. Um, so for example, in 2008, I think Dravid was dropped from the one day team and as a sign of pro protest, which obviously nobody's going to know, but I didn't watch the ODI series where Raina and the others were picked wow. ahead of them. 
<laughs> this is my kind of, you know, protesting. Yeah, if Dravid's not there, I don't care. But by the time, you know, 2012, 2011 came along, I realized the team is greater than any of the individuals. And I was actually turned off by the, uh, I think it was 2013, when they organized a special test series for Sachin Tendulkar. And I didn't watch any of that. So like that evolution is constant. And I feel like um, it's going on even now because I had a very soft corner for Virat Kohli over the last few years. But when he decided to resign, I said, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's a good time to move on. It's a good time for Indian cricket to move forward. And I'm 100% sure I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. (laughs) So uh, I think we all keep evolving as, as fans and as human beings. So Sakib, is, is that a cultural thing, do you think? Because I don't think that ha- really happens outside of India, like in other countries, like their teams or their sports. I don't, I've never seen personally, I don't, I have not seen the strong connection between flan, uh, fans and individual players. And is is that, a, is that, do you think that's a cultural thing? Because I don't even know, like when you started following the game, I know we had the Gavaskars and the couple Daves, but did they have the same bond with the cricketing fans as the likes of Tendulkar, Dhoni and Kohli in subsequent years? But there's also, I think the IPL, right? And the international flavor that we are talking about, if you, you can compare, you can take this question in two avenues, right? I've spent 27 years in the US and here it's a club culture, right? Patriots, Red Sox, Chicago Bulls, whatever, Lakers. But, right. uh, you know, the legends move sometimes uh, like Tom Brady is showing us, right? He still had a lot of football left, and now he's playing for the Buccaneers instead of the beloved Patriots. So mm-hmm. at that time, I'm not a football fan, but I'm a New Englander, so I asked a lot of friends. They still root for Brady. Uh, they have nothing against him because he got to so many championships. But there's an occasional guy who said, look, he, he's not in my team. I don't like him anymore. So cricket never had that, right? Cricket mm-hmm. was always national. I think that's a unique team sport. Uh, I don't follow many sports, but even football, which is soccer for Americans, is club-based. You know, there is a strong World Cup and uh, the Euro Cup and, you know, Latin America Cup where, you know, countries uh, take precedence, but it's still a primarily a club sport where you go sign up for the club and the fans follow the club, not the player. And and of course, I I, I firmly believe because in my NBA liking, I followed the players. When I came here, I didn't like Boston Celtics because they were terrible. And I was lucky enough to see the last three years of Jordan. I saw him live twice at the Fleet Center and that was just like surreal. So I became a Bulls fan. Then I followed Scottie Pippen, you mm-hmm. know, when he went to Portland. I didn't like the Bulls. So my fandom was based on players. I used to like uh, Alan Houston in the New York Knicks. And then uh, I liked Kobe, but I never liked the Lakers. That was very weird. I wanted the Lakers to lose, but Kobe to score. Because yeah. there was something about Lakers which never said well. So to answer your question, I mean, look, all three of us, given our introduction, I came in at the tail end of 83 World Cup. You came at the 96 World Cup. And Mayank came... I think 2003 World Cup, is it? A little bit before that, yeah. A little bit before, so coming out party. So I think cricket has changed even when Mayank came, you know, like 19 years ago, that was a different game, you know. But uh, to answer a broader question, I think Tendulkar was, and Leander Pace were the heroes. India, my India was looking for in 1990. You know, I was 14. Pepsi came to India first. I don't know if you know about the story. There was something coming on Doordarshan. So they kept saying, 15 August, watch this space. I don't remember, but we didn't know what's coming. So it was Pepsi being launched and Remo Fernandez, you know, ad was launched. And that's a year Tendulkar goes and scores 100 in Old Trafford. Leander Pates wins junior Wimbledon title, you know, because till that point, our heroes were Boris Becker and Ivan Lendl and Steffi Graf. And now we have like these guys, you know, and such and especially we thought, okay, they can take on the world. And uh, that was a very good time to be uh, an Indian fan compared to, you know, what I was seeing two years ago when 
uh, a declining West Indies would come and almost beat us till, you know, we got a rank turner and Narendra Hirwani got those 12 wickets. Mm -hmm. So, look, I think evolution is key here. I think you, and I, I'm going to talk about, you know, the Tendulkar part two in a later conversation if we have time, uh, that series they arranged because with that, it ended my innocence. I was like uh, 20, I was in my 30s actually when the Tendulkar retirement happened and I've had it the way that was orchestrated and the rise of BCCI. So that's the time when I started drifting away from Indian cricket, I was asking questions, you know? So yeah. it's like, you know, like uh, if our, you know, we are, you know, I don't know, yeah, Mike, you have a, I know you're married, but you don't have kids, right? Or do you? No, no kids. Okay, so, so Benny, you have kids, I saw a picture. So tomorrow, like, you know, your kids go in the playground and they're young, but uh, if they fight with another kid, your job would be to first pull your kid, even though your kid is not wrong, you will say, go say sorry. And, you know, you try to teach them the values, right? How we yeah. want to approach this. So right. similarly, even though Indian team is not my kid, but I don't want to be that fan who's just blindsided, you know, like the term we use is bhakt. Even I was a big Tendulkar bhakt in his, in his, you know, all these years. And I would always inject Tendulkar in a conversation, which I find very offensive. Like, you know, you talked on Twitter, you talk about uh, Djokovic, Federer fans bring Federer in. You talk about Federer, Nadal fans bring Nadal in. You know, <laughs> just talk about the guy we're talking about. Yeah. You know, but that's what fans do, you know, and I was that guy who would always bring Tendulkar in. But uh Years from now, I mean, I kind of see things differently. And I've gone on the other extreme, extreme. when I grade, if I'm a teacher, I'm grading India the hardest. Right. You know, so people say, hey, that happened, you know, when Ponting did this, I said two wrongs don't make a right. If Ponting did it, we don't know what Australian culture is because I think Australian culture is very similar to America. There's a lot of banter, there's a lot of trash talking. At the end, you have a beer and go home. But in right. Indian culture, I think there's a colonial hangover. I can speak for myself. You can swear at me in Hindi, I would not flinch. But if someone swears me in English, I'm not racist, but it, it kind of hit me harder. I'm a Delhi right. guy. So, but now I see differently, Virat Kohli can do all tough boy actor Mitchell Johnson, but I'm, that's not Delhi to me. Maybe that's West Delhi. All my friends are from West Delhi. I spent a good time in uh, Rajendra Nagar, Narayana, Narayana, Kirti Nagar, Dhalakum. You know, that's my, that's my adda where I used to hang out. All my friends are Punjabi Hindu boys. But even sometimes how Virat Kohli acts, I'm not gonna just say, no, he's a Delhi wala. No, there are a lot of people in Delhi who don't act like that. And, yeah. you know, so, so those are things, right? You know, when you kind of become this global fan, I kind of became, I have blinders on, I became more strict on India. I didn't like, if they did it, now it's right. I didn't like, oh, in the commentary box, you know, Gavaskar has to insult Ian Chapel. Right. You know, which was cool, by the way, in 92, when Gavaskar stood up uh, in that famous series I talked about with Azhar and Abbas Ali Beg led the Indian team. Gavaskar was the sole voice and he would sometimes put uh, Bill Laurie, Richie Benno, he will speak for India and it was very refreshing. But 20 years down the road, when the finances run through India, Indians are making fun of Pakistanis or Australians are not saying back. I don't enjoy that. I think that's something wrong with the game. And uh, that's when political commentators like Mukul Kesavan and Sharda Ugra call it out. I think they have a reason to call it out. And people say these are like champions sipping liberals and they have no touch with reality. But I relate to that criticism more than just, you know, India is my team and I'm going to just, you know, defend them at all costs. I don't, you know, I did for the longest time, but with my gray beard and my mid thirties to where I am, I don't. I even find faults in Dravid, even though Dravid is the perfect sportsman I think that existed, but I think there is a media image of him that we all want to believe and we want to run with it, you know, but uh, the truth lies elsewhere. He's no Mahatma, he's no villain, probably a decent guy, but there's like a lot of gray area that is room for conjecture. You read the articles, you make your own conclusion. So I'm, I'm not gonna just slap Ganguly and Kohli all the time and say Dravid is my hero. Now I see things differently. I think uh, 
uh, same situation can be viewed in different, you know, through different vantage points. And if you hear people out, I think uh, we only get a version of the truth. We don't know what's going on. It's a big political entity. And the, and the biggest thing is the fans. We all discuss about them. So Kohli versus Ganguly, there's a lot that we don't know. That's how I maintain. Sorry, again, you know, I kind of had a lot to say. I tied That's all you want. <laughs> okay. No, but you did take a lot of words out of my mouth because, you know, speaking about evolution, um, like you said, when I started watching, following the game, like maybe I was a Tendulkar buck back then and uh, Tendulkar could do no wrong in my opinion. And so everything was viewed through that lens where, you know, if there was even a hint of controversy or anyone said negative, anything negative, forget media. My mom knew how to poke me. Like if she wanted to annoy me, she would trash talk Sachin. And, and it worked. I would get so annoyed and my mom would say stuff like, why are you following that short guy? He, he, he doesn't do anything for you. He's going to play. He's going to earn his money and just listen to his voice. By the way, my mom is a lovely person and she's, she did that intentionally to annoy me. Um, but I would get, you know, I would really get worked up and I would be like, you know what? He, he, he's a great Indian uh, and he's doing this for the country. And that's how, it, you know, and similarly, yes, the Dravids, the Gangulis and the Lakshmans, you know, to me, they were more than just uh, playing cricket. To me, they were representing the country and they were representing me. And it is amusing to me now when I look back and I think that's kind of childish. <laughs> why, why did I put so much into that? Because now I feel like now that I'm older, hopefully wiser, I see it for what it is. It is a game. It's a game that I love, sure. But ultimately, the players are human beings. They get paid for what they do. And ultimately, they are playing for them for themselves. So now when I read about all the, you know, all the backroom politics or the the leaked reports or anything surrounding our cricketers uh, like the Kohli's and Rohit Sharma's and the Dhoni's and all these talk of rifts or whatever I just I don't feel as emotionally invested uh, in it and I and I wonder if it's just a matter of just growing older and realizing there's more to life than just this so one of the things that I really don't like about the game right now is just how social media seems to just overblow everything. You know, fans take everything very personally and way too seriously. And it let it affects me. So one of the things that I started doing recently is, especially when India start losing uh, or they lose, I kind of switch off social media because what I realized was happening to me was I would read all these tweets or these posts, uh, uh, you know, everyone trashing India or Indian team, the captain, and I, without realizing it, I was getting angry. I was letting it kind of affect me and in turn make me upset. And I realized I don't need this in my life. <laughs> you know, I just want to watch the game for what it is. So that's one toxic thing about the game that I don't like. And I don't know if that's unique to cricket. Um, like you said, soccer or tennis, you know, fans of certain players may trash talk other players and they may take it a little too far. Um, so, yeah, it's funny how that has evolved for me. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not in that cult of personality anymore. I'm still a huge fan of Virat Kohli. And probably he's my favorite player right now, slightly ahead of Bumrah. But uh, I'm glad to say that has changed. But as a fan who's been following the game for, you know, this long time, um, just the social media effect 
And I think that has a huge that has a huge role to play in how we follow the game right now. Because unless you're just watching it on TV and then you're just with friends, maybe you're not aware of it. But when you're watching the game along with, I don't know, thousands and thousands of others, and you get all these views thrown at you, and it's for a few seconds at a time, and then there's someone else has an opinion, it starts to have an effect. And it was starting to have a bad effect on me. So uh, I would say that's one thing that was never the issue when I first started following, and now it's just an ubiquitous thing. I mean, I think in, in terms of disliking the game, I, I think social media and, and its impact are not, as you said, it's not specific to cricket. I think that's true for our politics, our, you know, other sports that we follow, pretty much any topic that we follow. There's, you know, 50,000 opinions out there and with social media, everybody has an opinion. But if there's one aspect that I really dislike about the game itself is from an administrative perspective, I don't see there being a, any clear plan on taking the game forward. And what I mean by that is taking the game past these, you know, 12 countries that play it regularly. And I'm being generous when I say 12, it's, it's really seven to eight countries. So right. that is probably the thing that frustrates me the most, because if you think about the kind of money that is in sports in America, there is so much money to be made for the ICC, for whoever wants to make this money, but there's just been very, very, very low momentum around it. And, you know, you hear the experts on American cricket, like Peter Delapena talk about it. And he says that, yeah, it's, it's great that we're saying there's going to be a major league and there's a minor league. And even then he's very, you know, suspect of, or he's very uh, unsure of how much of this will materialize. And that I think is my biggest frustration because there's clearly a market for this outside of those, you know, eight to 10 countries. And I think as as more and more people get involved, the quality of the game is just going to improve. Yeah, we may see, you know, India being the 10th best country in the world, but if we're seeing better cricket, I think overall, we'll just see, we'll just enjoy the sport nonetheless. And that'll be true for, you know, all kinds of fans around the world. So that is probably something that really frustrates me. Sakib, was there any time that you felt um, that you're falling out of love with the game? You know, there's times where you just thought, you know what, I don't want to watch cricket. I want to stick with tennis. I don't want to do cricket anymore. Yes, excuse me. It's happened like a few times, you know, where the fandom has taken a hit and then you kind of reevaluate. But I think to what you were saying, I was just thinking and processing that, you know, like we live uh, through the life of a sportsman, like vicariously, you know, like we are thinking we're happy in their moment of success. We are crying when they, you know, get run out of the last ball or get caught at the boundary or get a double fault, whatever, right? Because uh, people who are not into sports, they think it's a waste of time. Like, you know, someone in, in someone's family would say, why are you wasting six, seven hours? And then the result doesn't go. You're like upset. And, you know, I think in, what happens here is like, depending on, at least in my case, how and where my life was at that point. So I'm, I'm going to give like a long-winded answer here. But uh, as a growing up as a, a Muslim in Old Delhi, we were like surrounded by a lot of Muslim families. But uh, we, I was son of a middle-class parents who were sending me to an English medium school. And our school in Delhi was pretty good back then. I don't know if it's an okay school now. So our, our public school, Dhalakuma. So I went there because my dad was a former army officer. So I got into that school. And uh, again, all my friends growing up were non-Muslim Hindus mainly and some Sikhs because they could hardly, I could find like three or four Muslims in the school. So the point here is growing up, I was one of the few guys in my neighborhood who was always rooting for India. And a lot of Muslims around me were rooting for Pakistan. And uh, 
me and my dad, dad might, you know, showed me like, you know, India is your team, India, you know, it made sense, India is a country, blah, blah, blah. But what happened with me is I seeing all the neighborhood kids rooting for Pakistan, I developed like such a disdain against Pakistan team, even when they were not playing India, I would root for Sri Lanka or West Indies or England. And the 92 World Cup is a classic story when we were giving our final board exams. Uh, most girls in my school were like big Wasim Akram and Imran Khan fans. They could care less about cricket. They thought these guys were hot, these guys, you know, whatnot. And, and even the, the, the guys, the cricket fans, they liked their game, even though they root for India. So at that time, I was so against Pakistan. They won the World Cup during Ramzan. I was just like so unhappy. And one of my best friends called me and said, there was a great final. I really am happy for Akram. I said, I wanted England to win. And he said, what's wrong with you? And this guy's a Punjabi Hindu. I said, oh, it's Pakistan. I don't want them to win. He said, yeah, but India is not there. I'd rather the cup stay in Asia. I said, what? That's, I've never heard of that. What does cup stay in Asia mean? They won the cup. We didn't. So to cut the story short, like uh, during my school, I was never discriminated against, you know, because it was very inclusive school and all my friends were good. But one time, because I was so sensitive of like the India, Pakistan and Indian Muslim thing, Azhar got out on two ducks in Sharjah in the famous uh, or infamous Akib Javed hat trick. And before that, I think the spinner, I think Akram Raza got him out, if I'm not mistaken, for duck, two, two back-to-back ducks. So someone said to me in the school, oh, he's a Muslim. And that's why he didn't score against Pakistan. I'm sorry, are you kidding me? He scored like in the 92 World Cup. He scored two centuries. Uh, then he scored 277 runs in the Pakistan tour. But I took it to heart. And uh, that was the insecurity I always had that I wanted to be a little extra. You know, there was something, a narrative that was built. I disliked Pakistan so much. And when Azhar was involved in match fixing, boy, it, it crushed me. Mm. It just left me at a place like, and I'm sure a lot of people like even Hindus, Muslim, Azhar was a very popular guy. Everybody felt betrayed. But mm. I took that betrayal to heart. Because I had come to India in 99 for a friend's wedding. And I saw Tendulkar lead India to Australia. And we were getting our asses kicked there. But Sachin was playing really well. And then Azhar was scoring daddy runs in domestic cricket. So there was a public sentiment that brought him back in the team. Right. And uh, Sachin said, okay, I'm not going to captain. If I'm not going to get the team I want, I don't want to captain, you know, because they, of course, they brought Azhar back. And then I went back to US. And, uh, and this is, again, we have a uh, pay-per-view series. I bought the pay-per-view series for India, South Africa. And Azhar scored that 100. And then the rest is history. He never played again. There was a match fixing. And then I had basketball in my life. But I just, something happened to me. I just couldn't share with many people. I was just so disappointed in, you know, how the match fixing saga played. I just uh, kind of detached myself to cricket. I watched, you know, the 2001 series. I was very happy when Ganguly led India to that series win in Kolkata with Ganguly, sorry, Travid and Lakshman. But that was one phase where I just couldn't share it with anyone. I just, uh, you know, just had no words to process, you know, that kind of betrayal. And of course, it's a sport, you know, another coach's. Some courts have set him free. He's back in the cricket community. Have I forgiven him completely? No. But I do. I follow him on Twitter and every now and then like his tweet. Yes, because, you know, it's okay. You know, he served his time. He didn't get to play his 100th test. And his biggest legacy is impacted. He's always called a fixer, while like the Ajay Jadejas and Prabhakars are not called fixers. So he get, got his punishment, maybe a bit harsh. So that was one moment. And then the other moment is the rise of BCCI in the Tendulkar series. The Ganguly Ch- Chapel saga kind of showed me sport in a different light. I was following the proceedings to the Red F and a lot of leaks. And that's when I changed my religion from the temple of Tendulkar, I went to the temple of Dravid. And you know, like the famous line, you know, like, uh, I don't wanna root for this guy. I grew up and my friends, my dad, a lot of people will be argued for years. And then the 2013 retirement ceremony, when everybody was crying, I thought, 
I don't want to insult the guy because I was like, you know, off his court. I'm saying, dude, you should have finished your career in South Africa. Why do we have the series here at home? You know? Yeah. I even joked that West Indies guys probably didn't even have their kits and they just gave them the bats come play. You know, they just came unannounced. <laughs> and, uh, and some of my best friends didn't forgive me. If, you know, I, I never put this stuff tough out on Twitter. So the rise of BCCI, the fallout of Azhar, and then the ugly Indian, the Sharda Ugra called me on the, on the podcast, like, you know, the BCCI administrators and how the Indian fandom has become over the years, uh, very in your face. Maybe it's a different India. You know, I'm in my mid forties. I'm not, I don't, you know, maybe people think I'm very passive, but that's not the India I grew up in. I don't want to make it all political. It's all good. You know, if you have a different view, it's your journey. Maybe I'm a confused old dude. And if I have a different view, that's my journey, how I arrived here. Uh, you know, Indian team broke my heart many times, but I always stuck with them thick and thin. But few things just, you know, kind of drifted me away temporarily. And I don't know if it was ever the same, but I still follow the team. Not a big fan of uh, Kohli and Shastri, how they went after the groundsmen, Monga. Because I always believe with the Amit Verma podcast, the scene and the unseen, there's a lot of unseen footage here that we don't see. So right. if you can mock a manga in a press conference, and if you can mock a groundsman in 2015 and Manjreka stood up for him, God only knows what you guys do when there's no one watching. And people say, you don't know what you're watching, but that's the, you know, I, I, take, I think the glass is, glass is half empty. I believe right. the stardom has, comes at a price. We make them into demigods and uh, everyone has a skeleton, including Dravid. I'm not giving him the free pass because I don't think he came into this job not knowing how the thing with Kohli is going to play out. Right. It was not his decision, but uh, you don't tell me a guy of that caliber in his interview didn't ask who I'm going to be working with, what, what's the roadmap, what happens if this happens, how are we going to manage this? He's a thorough guy. Right. He failed once in 2007 when Chapel had gone, he quit after India had won the series in England. So I don't think he would set himself for failure, even though his tenure started with a failure, but he kind of knew the roadmap and Ganguly and Jay Shah and all the powers must have given him assurance. Look, we'll do the dirty work or whatever. We'll handle this. You do this. So, so that's, uh, that's the world I live in. And I don't want to upset anyone who's listening to my podcast and your podcast. You know, that's how I see things, you know, like as 45 year old, I don't just clap for the cover drive. I, if if I get a glimpse of what's happening behind the closed door, I take it personal. Right. And I could be wrong. You know, I mean, I, I wish we could say that cricket is just a game of, you know, bat and ball and that it, you know, we leave it at that we don't live in that kind of a world anymore where there's so many factors involved just as a fan, you know, we know who, you know, we spend, well, maybe not all the fans, but let's say a significant number of fans spend as much time analyzing, you know, as much time as they analyze like the actual cricket itself. They also analyze the impact of the coaches and the player, uh, player management or the boards. And that all combined is what makes it a cricketing experience for us and how we perceive it, you know, how much we love the game, how, what are the things about that we dislike. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, all of the undertones or behind the scenes that does have a say in how we view the game. Yeah, I think, I think uh, really great point, Sakab. I think there's, uh, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking there's a lot to think about when you mentioned, you know, all the things that we haven't even seen, like whether it's criticism, but the other thing that I was thinking about as the sport and how we relate to it is also, at least in my mind, a lot of people, especially obviously now we're all older and we probably have better relationships with our fathers and uncles and all that. But when we were younger, um, I remember in my teens, like 
cricket was the one thing I used to, I could talk to my dad about. Like mm-hmm. we could have, you know, he could be unhappy with my grades. He could be unhappy with what I'm doing in school. Uh, but we would be completely fine talking about cricket and similarly with my grandfather as well. And uh, I think that is also one really interesting way where, you know, sport connects multiple generations. And I think that is also a really interesting evolution uh, in that sense, because early 2010s is when I watch a lot of cricket with whenever possible with my grandfather. And then, you know, discussed a lot of it over the years with, with my dad. And now whenever he calls me, we, talk 30 minutes of cricket and then two minutes of how we're doing and then that's that's sort of our uh, routine and then my mom's always confused why I don't have anything to talk to her but but that's also <laughs> another way of uh, how you know we, we all sort of evolve with the game and how our relationships around the game um, or how our game affects the relationships around us I should say. And I'd like to add one more thing again to the listeners here I don't want to confuse them I have no issue if you relate to a cricket uh, sorry, a political party. You can be a Congress guy. You can be a BJP guy if you're a cricketer. Where I draw a line is, I don't think it's just bat and ball. I include cricket politics in my judgment. Right. And I, I always maintain we get a half picture. We don't get a half uh, full truth. But, uh, you know, I've grown up. I've seen life. I can draw my own conclusions from far. And they can be way off. And I could be totally wrong on many accounts. But I don't impose my views on others. But when, when asked, it becomes, you know, you know, what was sexy like 20 years ago you know, sitting, watching Tendulkar at three in the morning in the 2003 World Cup. That's actually, yeah, you asked me, that's one of my greatest memories when he uppercut Akhtar for that six, the back foot punch. And even though that Pakistan attack was fading, it was still Akram, Vakar, and Shweb. And India chased 277, and which was like unheard of those days to change 277 in like 44 or 46 overs. And I sat in the same pose holding my chai cup because I had a superstition. If I change my hand, Tendulkar would get out. Stupid stuff you do. And I didn't change. And my dad realized after two and a half hours, oh, why don't you put the cup down? I said, no, no. He said, no, you have, and then he got mad. He said, look, we don't believe in these superstitions, put the cup down. And I just, you know, held back the cup. I said, no, till India wins, I'm not putting the cup down. And I can't believe 10 years later when Sachin retired, I didn't cry. And I was a, just like a generation who grew up on watching his name on the scoreboard. And some of my best friends today who have made in the US and India, we have solid disagreements. They don't agree with me, like why I went out of the temple of Tendulkar. I said, look, it's just something like you fall out of a friendship in a relationship. I can't explain. I'm not saying my reasons are valid, but I never go back. I don't want to insult him. You know, I don't want to mock right. him. You know, he gave me some of the best memories of my life growing up. Uh, and I remember in 99 when Becker was retiring, I said, I may not watch tennis again. Big lie. I watched again. But, you know, as a 23-year-old, <laughs> I thought, you know, tennis is over. And then I said, yeah. same thing. When Sachin retires, I will stop watching cricket. And, of course, when it happened, I had different views about Sachin. But... Uh, yeah, I think uh, the evolution is also like when you grow as a as a person, because I think at each juncture of our of our fandom, we are living the Sachin, the Kohli's, the Beckers, the others through our vantage point, and that's when we can be hard fans of Bhakt, or we can be objective. You know, depending on how objective we are at that part in in our life, right? Nothing else matters. I want to just back this guy. You know, I, I hear people say on Twitter, "Oh, if someone says so and so about this, I'm going to block him." As a dude, grow up. But then again, two minutes later, I said, look, maybe he is who he is. And that person is saying this because that's what they really believe in. And I've said a lot of stuff like that when I was in my mid-20s or early 20s or even 30s. I might have offended some people, you know, with my tennis takes. But now I'm a little more careful, just reflect more and second guess myself. Uh, It's insecurity, but I think that's what keeps me a little bit honest because I don't want to just believe what someone says, even though when I spoke to Kimber, it was a great podcast. 
I finally put the Pujara intent and Kohli thing to bed because he explained the stuff to me really well. He said, look, what you're seeing is a part of the conversation. You're not seeing everything, what Kohli means about intent. He could have just talked to Pujara. Look, I fucked up in the press conference. I didn't mean you, even though I mean you, but I don't mean you in the full context. So, you know, and fans like me, we run away with it. Oh, he's singling me out. And that's why I became a Chaitanya Pujara fan out of activism that he was being singled out. <laughs> I never liked the guy when he came to play. I was a Jinkirahani fan. So my fandom is, you know, maybe a reflection of my life, you know. But you, you, you just proved my point, uh, which we kind of agreed upon as well, is that our fandoms come in different shapes and sizes, right? It's not one size fits all. I don't have to have the same likes and dislikes that you have to say that we both are fans. We, we both love the game in our own different ways. And we can like and dislike completely different things. And we can still say, we still like the game. I can still, you know, wake, set an alarm for two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning to watch uh, a test happening uh, a continent away. And that's, you know, that is the extent of how much I am so addicted to this game that I, I think that's a rational thing to, I have work in the morning at 7.30, but guess what? I'm gonna set an alarm and watch this game and then go to work. Uh, so Sakib, what is your hope as a fan what is it that you want to see in cricket going forward? Look, as an Indian well-wisher, even though I'm, I don't see an eye to eye with, with the system, I think this is an opportunity to dominate. You know, the kind of hard work that has gone into it, you know, by accident or like India's just fixation with cricket, our, our, our talent pool is second to none. So Javed, Rohit Sharma, whoever comes, I think the biggest question would be selection and man management because no one else has this kind of talent. Like we drop Pujara and he never plays again. A lot of teams would love to have Pujara in their team. Are you kidding me? Someone just right. hunting like 90 balls for like 20 odd runs. So, and we saw what England did in Australia right now. And Australia without Steve Smith and Marnus doesn't have a batting bench. So from an Indian well-wishing point, India can win World Cups and can fulfill any dreams that the Virat Kohli generation couldn't do, which was an awesome generation. Virat Kohli should leave with his held, head held high. Like he kind of created this cricket culture here, which was very far into my generation, you know, in your face. And he, he won so many test matches. So that way, I think Indian cricket is in good hands. You know, like Monga said on my podcast, we've arrived here by accident because we have the biggest fans and the system comes from the fans and then the money goes in the cricket, MRF Academy to IPL. India cricket is really, really in good hands. Uh, it'll be about yeah. man management and who you play and how you get the results. As for the world scene, I'm more with Mayank. I think, uh, uh, what the legacy would be is to make cricket a more of a global sport, you know, support yeah. like uh, foster nations that have talent, but don't have the financial capability to sustain at that level. But it's, but it's also a wishful thing in the end, it's a business. So I'm sure these conversations, BCCI and ICC and all the powers concerned, they do talk about this, but we, I would like to see it become like a, a proper sport where like, they're like at least 15, 16 nations that come in the world cup, uh, and they have to figure out, you know, how conducive it is. Uh, it can't be a two-month World Cup because then it becomes too long. So I'm sure there's a lot of things at play. America is a very interesting market because the Desis are growing here, Indian Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans. But uh, I'm skeptical that uh, this is something, it won't take off here unless it's introduced at the school level because right. cricket is played in schools in Canada. So if you're going to just have like, you know, Desis playing at a random field, which is how cricket is played in Massachusetts, it's going to be good for them to play, but I don't think U.S. will be able to produce world-class cricketers because right. you need to involve the, ma the mainstream crowd. 
I think, uh, and that, you know, soccer, they've been trying. The men's soccer team hasn't had like much luck and soccer's following is so much more than cricket uh, in, in the global spectrum. If you take Indians and Pakistanis out, I mean, who follows cricket? <laughs> you know, that's why India-Pakistan match is the match, you know, right. whenever they play, you know, even though Pakistan finally won, we've been beating them for so long. It's just like the most watched event because there's so many people interested in it. Right. So I don't know if I'm giving an answer. I mean, Indian fan-wise, there's a lot to look forward to. And uh, does the game get better? We all hope for that. But uh, the jury is out there. You know, how many countries will be playing test cricket like 10 years from now? Right. Mike, as, as someone who is one of those daisies playing on a random cricket field in the U.S. <laughs> where a couple of Americans walk by and wonder what's going on, what are your wishes for the game as a fan going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's important that, you know, the, the administrators take a long-term view of cricket. And I think that's one of the more challenging things when it's, you know, running sport or even running a company. Like a lot of, you know, if you think about CEOs, they'll, they'll think about short-term profits and increasing the stock price and getting their money out in three years. But I think that's where sport administrators also think about it that sense because they probably have a three, four-year term. I think it's important to start thinking long-term and saying it's okay if we don't do too much in the next three years, if we spend time on the grassroots. And, and the US is a great example because you know we've, we've talked about these stars like Unmuk Chand coming to the US and getting $70,000 plus a house plus a car, which is equivalent to a $100,000 package for a three-year contract in, in, in the US. And then they eventually get you know, green cards so that they can work, uh, you know, play from here. Now that's great for the national team but as Saka was saying, that the, the Desi population who might see that and get attracted is 3% of the U.S. population. So how are you right. going to really compete with that, you know, with those, with those numbers? How are you gonna, really going to make the sport uh, an American sport with those numbers? So trying to understand, and, you know, whether it's, to his point, uh, a school level, or I remember we were talking to Bertus about sport and about cricket in the Netherlands, and he said it's more of a club cricket culture. So trying to understand what those balances are in different countries and really supporting those grassroots is, is key. I think if we do that over the next 10 years, then uh, you know, the potential is, is really great considering, um, you know, considering the fact that now with all the technology that we have, we can watch Brazil women take on Argentina women on iccricket.com. Like the exposure, the potential of exposure is, is great but we need to invest so that when people see that, it's really good quality sport and they don't look at it and be like, what is this rubbish? And they turn it off. So making sure we create that impact and set that set up that people watch it and you know, are hooked to it is, is essential. And, and Peter De La Pena, I'll, I'll go back to him, the US uh, ESPN Cricket Info Associate is a, I was listening to his journey in cricket and it's super interesting that he was doing a semester in Australia. And right around that time, the 2005 Ashes was going on. And those that was a very, very close series. And that's how he got hooked to cricket. So I think that's, that's a lesson for, you know, anybody, anyone trying to develop associate cricket or any of the lesser known nations that we need to get to a point where quality is so good that it's mm. just hard to, hard to put, you know, turn eyeballs away. Now, I'd like to add this is a very interesting point about De La Pena you said, because one of my early friends in the US who introduced me to NBA was an Irish American gentleman called Tim Galogli. You know, we fell out of touch because, you know, he went to Navy school and then uh, never spoke to him for a while now. He found me on Twitter we every now and then talk about tennis. So one day he mentioned Rahul Dravid. I said, dude, you're an American. How do you know Rahul Dravid? He said, I worked 
two and a half years in UAE and I watched a lot of cricket on TV. And that time Rahul Dravid was the most respected cricketer in the world. And he, he learned cricket because of Dravid and he's a Dravid fan. And I'm saying, I need to get in the podcast. Said, no, 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 I don't do well on podcasts. Says, no, it's my podcast. Let's come for 30 minutes. So I think that just adds to Mike's point. At some point, you have to infuse the mainstream America. Because uh, last time I remember listening to mainstream radio was the 2015 World Cup, and they were mocking cricket because that's the first time ESPN, I think, mentioned cricket in Sports Center or something, because that's when the ESPN app was launched uh, on the iPad or something. And they were just mocking. So there's a lot of insults. Like if, if there's an Indian or Pakistani not sitting, a lot of Americans just mock cricket in a very lighthearted way. But then for us, it just doesn't sit well because, you know, they're making fun of the game that we all love. So there's a big disconnect there. So it can only, I think, like for, for whatever Mike said makes sense, but it only has to be injected and some inroads have to be made at the ground level. Otherwise, it'll be just a bunch of Indians, Pakistani and West Indians playing and it'll get better. Don't get me wrong. Unmuk Chand is a step in the right direction. But uh, for the talent to be groomed from the local, uh, you know, the local hopefuls, it, it has to have a more permanent place in some sort of a schooling or some sort of a YMCA sponsored, you know, where it's just coming into the mainstream that others are also trying to hold a bat and see, okay, what this is fuss about. Otherwise it's going to just stay like a expat sport. You know, I, I wanted to do this episode to talk about our love for the game and how we got into it and, you know, love at the risk of me getting philosophical uh, love isn't always rosy, right? It isn't like a Bollywood romance. It isn't always just songs and dancing around trees. Uh, there's a fair bit of pain. There's a fair bit of tears. And sometimes you don't want to do it. It's, it just disappoints, but also gives a high that you can't really describe. And to me, that really describes my relationship with the game where I'm, I don't think I would say I'm as... Um, attached to the game as I was in my teens but I still follow the game enough that I have a podcast where we, we spend every week talking to people from all over the world but with uh, different levels of involvement because that is my way of staying engaged with the game um, because I can't really follow the game just because of the time zone levels uh, differences I can't you know watch every single game live but I can stay connected I can still talk about it um, and for me, that is one way of, you know, expressing my love. And I know that, you know, like you guys shared, there are many, many others, you know, many of our listeners too, who follow this game, who love this game. And we all have different stories and different perspectives. And like anything you love, you want to see the best for it. And, and I think what you guys just expressed as far as how we want the game to grow and for more people to learn uh, you know, look past the jokes about, oh, it takes five days and you guys break for tea. You know, I've heard that a lot. Um, yeah. And I, I really wish more people uh, took the time to kind of understand. And I really hope the administrators do a better job of expanding it because this game is really too good for only a few select countries um, to be aware of and, you know, give it their all when they're playing. So I want to thank you guys so much uh, for actually taking the time to have this discussion. Uh, special thanks to Saqib um, and to our listeners. Do check out his podcast, Cricket with an Accent. He has some amazing conversations with some of the most interesting guests in the world of cricket. Uh, so thanks, Saqib. And uh, do, do you have any last thoughts or words for us? Yeah, we, no, I just want to share a funny story because we've kind of made it into a very hard-hitting topic here. 
I'll just make two <laughs> quick points uh, uh, before I make a funny story. The quick point here is when we followed cricket, right? We were all growing up wherever we were with college friends, school friends. With friends, you have liberty, right? If you like Sachin, you like Azhar, you can argue with your best friend and, you know, it's still okay. But in right. Twitter, what Twitter has done is it's become like global market come together. But at the same time, when we dislike someone or we automatically start disliking a player because of someone's views. And I think that's where we all should be careful, you know, mm. uh, and I'm guilty too, like on both cricket and tennis, sometimes I pay attention to some person who I don't agree with their views on a player. And then, you know, you need, we need to do better. That person is speaking their mind. And if that person is making Steve Smith look like an ass, you know, at the same time, I don't have to become a Steve Smith fan just so I can oppose that person's views. And I've noticed that sometimes the friction is more when two, two, you know, fan bases lock heads. Sometimes a very casual fan can become a diehard, uh, anti-diehard fan because there's so much staunch disagreement. We start, and, and, and Kohli doesn't even know that me and this other guy are arguing about him. He could care less. But pro Kohli and anti Kohli, we start owning Kohli. The guy who loves Kohli owns a good side of Kohli that he has zero idea about. And guy like me who doesn't like Kohli, I'm owning stuff that I don't know anything about. And it becomes like such a polluted, heated environment. And uh, this is the disadvantage of Twitter. The advantage is we know all of you, the Gurkiris of the world, the Himanishes of the world, the Karthik Jairaman, you know, like so many good guys in cricket. But the disadvantage is sometimes things become too personal. Right. So that's my only advice. You know, like sometimes you see a tweet, don't react, don't correct someone, just go to another app and come back because, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of stuff is said in haste. <laughs> and the funny story I want to share is on the same Pakistan trip, we took the same flight back with the Pakistani team on the PIA. I had no idea they were on the flight and it, it was small plane. So there was no business class, I think maybe three or four seats. So I saw Ajaz Ahmed and Abdul Qadir sitting in the flight, I think. And I said to my cousin, who was like four years older than me, she's, oh, this is a Pakistan team. And then she walked in front of the plane when the plane, the flight was in air. Imran was sitting there. And of course, you know, Imran, you know, she, she immediately had a crush of a fan and she grabbed my magazine, famous English magazine from Pakistan I brought home and she got Imran Khan's signature. Hmm. And then uh, the story is funny, like when we came to the Indra Gandhi airport or whatever the airport was called back then, we are standing 10 feet or less than 10 feet away from the Pakistan team. They are the international line and we are the Indian national line. And my aunt who has zero knowledge about cricket asked us in Punjabi, literally, which one is Imran? And he could hear it. And I'm just dying. I said, come on, don't do this. You know, like, even though I'm not a Pakistan fan, this is, and as an 11 year old boy, I found it embarrassing. And I'm kind of like, saying, no, 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 that's him. She said, which one? The one in the blue suit, blue, blue jacket? I said, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was just, it's more funny in Punjabi, the way she said it, like, you know, and my cousin just like stepped two ways. Basically, no, I just took his autograph. You're embarrassing us. He could care less. Maybe he heard us or not. It was just like such a classic story. And, you know, my aunt did give two hoots about it. And she said, which one is Imran? And I'm just saying, don't do this. <laughs> and that's just like such a mem such a memory for us. Of course, the team was heartbeaten, uh, heartbroken because they had lost the semifinal, and they had to come play an exhibition in India. And I think it was planned because Indian Pakistan would play the final, so they came to honor like some exhibition commitment. And hmm. my my cousin said she went and talked to Imran, and she and her friend came next day to see him off at the airport. I don't know how much of it's true, but you know, girls do these you know these kind of things. You know, even when she was in her what, yeah, now she's. Yeah, I hope she doesn't listen to the podcast. I'm putting some details out there, but this is from the year 87. I yeah. feel like there are a bunch Thanks. of people you should warn ahead of time. Don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks for having me. You know, like this was fun. I spoke freely 
And uh, I was skeptical what I'll speak, but I think you made it a three-way conversation, which kind of gave me some breathing room. And and uh, yeah, and I listen to you guys a lot. Mank is great. To, uh, he's very sound at the technique of the game. I read his blogs. I subscribe it. I think, Benny, you're a great host, even though podcasting is more of a content like with knowledge. But uh, you have the voice that could have been on radio because, you know, you, see, you grab see, the this is this is our role. Mike, uh, him and <laughs> bring the knowledge. I bring the voice. That's all. <laughs> That's how it is. No, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, like your knowledge right up there. But again, I'm old school <laughs> listening to radio. I think you yeah. just made for this medium. I think you, you speak really well. And, uh, you know, the opening remarks, people want to listen to it when you have that kind of a speaker. So, yeah, good job. You've done some. Good, good work in the first year yeah. of uh, the last wicket and wish you all the best. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Sakib for coming on and sharing his experiences of following the game. You can find him on Twitter at Sakib A. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Cricket with an Accent podcast. Once again, check out our nomination at sportspodcastawards.com and the cricket episode on the We Got Balls podcast. Now for the routine reminders, if you enjoy this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you for listening, and from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.